Lord, thank you that we don't have to um, make you up or guess what you are like, but you've revealed yourself to us in your Son and in your Word about him. And so as we look at this chapter now, we pray that we may see more of the beauty of Jesus. That we may see more of our need of him. And so we would leave this place thankful for him. In his name we pray. Amen. One of the drumbeats week by week in this series that we've seen through 1 Samuel is is a sense in which we are dissatisfied with the answers that Samuel gives us. That is, we, we get an answer in part, but it's not the full answer. It doesn't quite scratch all our itches. We're left wanting more. And it's right that we feel that week on week because that's partly the way the book works. We're left dissatisfied and looking ahead. And this week will be no exception. We will look ahead to um, King David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, once again. We will once again see him defeating God's enemy. We will look ahead to Jesus as he dies on the cross and sees um, sin and death and Satan defeated. But before we get there, before we look ahead to Jesus, and we will, I want to start in 1 Samuel 17 and then look backwards. Because I think this story is so well known We zoom right in and we miss the fact that it deliberately pulls forward various threads and ideas and characters and themes from before this chapter, drawing them together for us in chapter 17 and then urging us to join the dots and look further ahead as well. Let me just show you what I mean. Um, three, Three shadows from before Samuel, from before 1 Sam 17 that cast their light or cast their darkness even over um, this story. What we're trying to do, we're trying to read our Bibles carefully. We're trying to think about what it meant for the people then and how they would have read it before we think of what it means for us. So the first one, I think there's a shadow of Joshua in here. Do you see, we have met giants before in the promised land. And Israel's track record against giants in the promised land, is not a great one. Do you remember? They approach the land. They send in 12 spies scouting out the promised land to see if they can take it, and the report comes back. It's a beautiful land. There's milk, there's honey, there's plenty. The grapes are enormous. But the people are enormous too. And so 10 of the spies are fearful, and they say, it's too hard, it's beyond us. There's no chance we can't do it. Two of the spies, Joshua, Caleb, they bring back the minority report, urging the people of God to see through the eyes of faith, to to trust him to provide what he's promised for them. He's brought us this far, he'll take us home, they say. But the majority win. The ten win, the people are too fearful, and so they don't enter the the land this time. And and here we are, It's, it's deja vu, isn't it? In the land we have a giant an enemy of the people of God in the place of God. And the people, again, are terrified, fearful. And we're meant to ask, well, what are they going to do this time? So Joshua is certainly in there. Do you see the story of Joshua casting its shadow over David and Goliath? I think as well you get the shadow of, um, of Joseph. Let me try and show you how. David 
the younger brother is sent by his father to the older brothers who are far away from him and who then end up abusing him. So do you remember back in um, Genesis 37? Let me just read to you. I'm reading from verse 17. You can scribble it down or um, look it up with me now. But Genesis 37 says, Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, but they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of those cisterns and say that a ferocious animal has devoured him. Now, David doesn't quite get it as bad, does he? But he is verbally abused by the group of older brothers. I think it's a pattern, it's a shape for us to spot. So verse 28, when Eliab, David's eldest brother, the tall, handsome one, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here and with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are, how wicked your heart is. Goodness, Eliab is just like man, isn't he? You've just come down to watch the battle. And so why that parallel? Why are we, what are we meant to take from that? If David is a sort of Joseph type, then what's going on? Well, maybe we'll see that he will go on to surpass all his older brothers as Joseph did. Maybe he'll do great things for the people of God as Joseph did. But I wonder as well, and you get this again and again, that that Joseph's raising up to a position of authority would take ages. He'd have to be very patient, as will David. He may be God's anointed king, we saw last time, but he's not the appointed king yet. That'll take years. There will be toing and froing with Saul for, for decades almost. So there's a shadow of Joshua, a shadow of Joseph, but there are shadows of Adam as well. Here we have a person who has dominion over beasts and animals. Someone who defeats bears and lions that threaten his sheep. And we'll see as well, here is one who will defeat an enemy serpent in the land. So shadows of Joshua, shadows of Joseph, shadows of Adam. That's zooming right out. Now let's zoom right in and think about the account itself. And well, firstly, we're just going to spend some time thinking about the enemy. We're going to zoom in on Goliath. Now we saw that Saul, if you were here in weeks gone by, was appointed king largely to protect the people as a military leader, from the Philistines particularly. That was why they wanted a king largely. Yes, to be like the nations, but there was a military element to it too. They were fearful. They saw the Philistines looming. They wanted someone to lead them. And then you reach chapter 17 and you find that the Philistines are invading the land. They are the furthest west they have been for a long time. The Philistine army is gathered on one hill, actively gathered. The Israelite army seems more slightly passively are assembled on another hill. And verse 4, we have this champion named Goliath from Gath. And he's enormous. It's an unusually detailed description of him. He's described as a champion, you see, in verse 4. But in one sense, that means more than just a champion. Literally, it means the man of the in-between. So imagine the battle line, Philistines all lined up. And imagine one of them stepping forward. He is a challenger. He is a representative of the Philistines, a a man of the in-between. 
He is the one calling the shots, shouting at the people of God. And he's described in terrifying terms. Um, in any method of measurement, he is huge, probably somewhere over nine feet tall. And yet again, do you remember last week? Remember Matt's kid slot? We're not to think about outward appearance. So he's massive, but we know that doesn't matter to God. I guess that's pretty hard to do when you've got someone that big standing over you. But he's huge, and he's covered in armour, metal armour. Now, we didn't stop there, but back in chapter 13, um, you read that the Philistines have a monopoly on metalworking. They have a sort of stranglehold over the people of God. Um, So chapter 13 and verse 19, not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares, mattocks, axes and sickles sharpened. So of course the Philistine champion, he's covered in metal. He's covered in bronze from head to foot. He, He appears to be impenetrable. And the description is detailed. It's there to impress us. It's there to help us feel the weight of the odds stacked against the people of God. It's there in one sense to make our knees knock. But then looking at verse 5 again, he, he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze. What has scales? A snake, a serpent has scales. What does this soldier look like? He looks like a huge bronze serpent. Isn't that weird? He's not just protected by armour. He's equipped with huge weapons as well. He's got a javelin of bronze. He's got an enormous spear. David mentions later on he's got a sword. And to cap it all off, he's got a bloke who carries his, his shield for him. I guess if you've got a spear and a javelin and a sword you might not have many arms left um, for a shield or maybe maybe he's just so special and important you have one guy whose job it is to protect him we have this close-up terrifying detailed picture of this powerful warrior we can imagine what he looks like and then we're told what he sounds like verse 8 Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel why do you come out and line up for battle am I not a Philistine and Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man, let him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. They they don't have a champion, do they? They don't have a man of the in-between. They've got nobody. The Israelites don't have one who will represent them. They don't have someone to stand up against Goliath as he goads the people of God. A colossal, frightening, snake-like enemy, terrifying his people, threatening their ability to enjoy the fruit of his promises. And verse 16, 40 days this goes on. 40 days, every morning and every evening. And you say, well, surely they need someone to come and stand in the gap, don't they? They need a champion. They need a man of the in-between, a representative who will do battle with God's enemy and who will bring victory. 
And verse 17, David comes onto the scene again. We, we met him last week. He was anointed by Samuel. He, he played music for Saul. And although he's not truly a king yet, he is, he is the protector of the people of God. Again, it's striking how, how prophetic Hannah's song is from week one. I increasingly think that is a, a vital introduction to the, to the book as a whole. Let me just read you a few, a few verses from Hannah's song to remind you. See, we've been prepared for what's to come by her song. Um, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance, she said. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength, she said. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up, she said. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails, she said. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, she said. And so he does. And he has. And David looks unlikely. Of course, we explored some of that last week. He is a shepherd boy, probably in his teens. He is just passing by. He's there to bring food in for his older brothers. And on his visit, he hears of this call of Goliath. He, he sees the fear of everyone else. He, he learns of the prize for the one who will come and defeat Goliath. Verse 25, the king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage. And he will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. Triple bonus. And yet, as we said, as perhaps only older brothers can, Eliab resents him for getting interested. Arrogant little tyke, what is he even doing here? He just wants to watch the fighting. And who's looking after the sheep? Has nobody thought of that? And yet David's words and questions are not just heard by Eliab. The Chinese whispers make their way to Saul who summons him, who hears from him that he wants to fight Goliath. You want to fight him? Verse 33, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. Striking David is, David is very often painted as the hero of this story, the, the underdog who triumphs with just a few simple stones, a whole lot of bravery and a good heart. But actually for him, it's all about the Lord's glory. It is God's fame and power that matter. His challenge to Goliath, his life, is built upon God's living for God. You see, it's the fact that Goliath has blasphemed the God of Israel. That is why David gets involved when he first hears Goliath, his response is, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? First mention of God in the account. Here is one who cares about God. 
And then when he speaks to Saul, the place that God holds in his speech, again, have a listen from verse 36. Your, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the poor of the lion and the poor of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. He cares about the Lord's name. He cares about what people think of God and his glory. And then the fact that David can't fit into the armor of Saul, it's not just kind of comedy value for children's Bibles. I mean, where you've got this tiny guy with this huge armor over him and he just can't quite walk around. It's, it's for the fact that Saul, the rejected king in worldly terms, is still thinking in worldly terms. He wants to protect him with his own armor. Do you see, Saul really is like a king of all the other nations, isn't he? He sees through his physical, human, fleshly eyes. David, the king they need, his confidence comes from the Lord. He will do things his way. He will look to the Lord and not to man. This is not a battle of one man against another man. This is a battle of the true and living God of Israel against the false gods of Felicia, presumably Dagon again. We met him in weeks gone by. And so verse 45, the key moment, I think, in the narrative. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Whose battle is it? It's the Lord's battle. How will it be won? Not by sword or spear or javelin, but in the powerful name of the Lord Almighty. Why will it be won? Why? So all the world will know who the true God is. This battle is to be a revelatory act. It is to show the world who is king. And let's be honest, it's a pretty disappointing battle, isn't it? In one sense. It's a bit boring. Hollywood wouldn't like it very much, would they? There are no up-close shots of sort of swords sparkling and snake-like armor glinting in the sunlight, muscles rippling. No flesh wounds and gasps from the crowd. No defeat from the jaw of death. It's over before it begins. David grabs a stone from his bag, uses his sling, fires the stone into Goliath's forehead. And Goliath, the blasphemer, is stoned to death. And then, as promised, he uses Goliath's sword. He chops off his head, and the Philistines scarper. It sounds pretty brutal. It would have been a common practice in that era to show that the battle was over, who the true champion is, but the head thing is repeated a number of times. 
Did you spot that as Hannah read it for us? You get it in 46. He said he would chop off his head. He does in verse 51. Strangely, then, he takes the head to Jerusalem in verse 54. Uh, and then he's still got it in his hand when he meets Saul in verse 57. It, it's as if we're meant to notice this. What, why the head thing, David? Uh, victory is undeniable. But maybe rather like Dagon's head falling off in the temple... Back in chapter 5, here we see the supremacy of God once again, the true God. Goliath has met the same fate as his so-called gods. Goliath is not the champion. I want to ask one final question, really, as we round the final bend, rather than draw things to a close. Um, my question is, who am I in the story? Who are we in the story? Why ask that? Because fundamentally it's usually assumed that we're David, isn't it? Do you know? You've got trials in your life. There are giants that need slaying. You feel tiny. Then be brave and conquer them, however big and scary they are. Here is the archetypal David and Goliath. And that's not entirely wrong, but I think if we leave the account seeking to proverbially chop the heads off our giants, we will be disappointed. Before we get to who we're, we're meant to be, though, in a broad room like this, I'm aware that we might naturally associate with different characters within the story. So maybe we feel like the Philistines. As you read it, you're looking in on Christian things. You know quite clearly you are not on God's side. Maybe you're a skeptic, maybe you're a cynic, maybe you're just anti and you're jeering like the Philistine crowds, standing behind their anti-God champion, laughing, laughing at God. And if someone considered, asked you, do you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you would certainly say no without the drop of a hat. You would much rather side with those who are outspoken and vehemently against God, whether it be the the new atheists or secularists or the ex-church crowd or whoever they are at this point. If that's you, I'd love to chat to you afterwards or maybe chat to those people around you. The message of the Bible is that the greater Goliath was defeated by, was defeated by Jesus and one day all will see that. Don't side yourselves with the Philistines. It may be that we have a tendency towards Eliab as well. The disbelieving older brother who looks at the one whom the Lord uses with disbelief, sneering cynic in your heart that says, really? Come on, God's plan is to use David? That's not how the world works. The youngest in the family without any armor? They've done a risk assessment? There's no military training. He's just got stones and a slingshot. It looks wicked and stupid and foolish. And I can't believe God would do it that way. Really, God's plan is to use Jesus, a man from nowhere, who dies in nakedness and shame on a cross and defeats sin and suffering and Satan in that place. And you're telling me he rose again from the grave? It looks wicked and stupid and foolish. And you want me, you're asking me to hang my life on him? 
Maybe we're not quite as cynical as that. But maybe we're where God says, I've got it covered, you just need to trust me. We think, really? God, have you? Have you really got a plan in this? It can be a daily battle, can't it? To keep on trusting him, to trust that he is good, that he knows best, that his plan is good, to to not be Eliab-like, looking down on, really, God, you sure? Here's the thing, who are we in the story? Who are we meant to be? I take it we're meant to be Israel. We are the people in the ranks. We are looking at God's enemy in front of us and we are trembling. We are looking for a man of the in-between. We are looking for a champion who will represent us and defeat the enemies of God. These enemies who are threatening us from enjoying the fruit of God's promises. And as David stands before a giant dressed in bronze armor, looking like a serpent with snake scales, and as he defeats him and he chops off his head, so we look ahead to Jesus, who at the cross defeats Satan once and for all, crushing the serpent's head. One writer puts it like this. In the same way, we, as it were, stand on the hillside surveying the story of history. And down in the valley, we see our Christ, Jesus, entering the battle, armed only with a beam of wood strapped to his shoulders. We see him face the snake who has tyrannized our lives as he hangs on the cross. There is Jesus, like David, appearing small compared to the might of the Roman Empire, appearing weak compared to the power of the snake. But he enters the battle bravely, he entrusts himself to God, and as we look, we see defeat turned to victory. As Jesus bursts from the tomb, the snake is defeated, his head is crushed. John would say later in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, the great dragon is hurled down, the ancient snake called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. And you see, when we have that victory front and center, when that is the context of our lives, we're ready to begin to see ourselves as the Israelites. We are victorious because he was victorious. We stand behind him because he went out before us. We are not David. We are not Christ, but we are in Christ. We benefit from his bravery and his kindness as he entrusts himself to his father. We can have faith because of the faithfulness of our, of our champion. We can have victory because of the victory of our champion. And it's in his victory that we live and we bask and we are secure and satisfied in what he's achieved for us. But the difficulty is that our hearts have this tendency to look away from our glorious champion who's represented us, who's done battle for us, and we begin to look back on ourselves again. And we don't look to his victory already won, but we begin to trust in our own strength and doing things our way, seeking to do again what he has done, thinking it's all about me. And I feel like a, a tiny person in front of an enormous giant And we think it's all about us. Many of us have these Messiah complexes. 
where we seek to do things our own way in our own strength. Maybe we seek to atone for our own sin. We, we work hard. We wear ourselves out because we're trying to pay God back for his gift to us. Maybe we're seeking to put to death a sinful nature, to put on Christ, but we just do that in our own strength, through our own hard work, through our own efforts, without looking to him as the one who's already victorious. Living the Christian life as if it's all about us can be exhausting, can't it? We seek to do it all in our own strength. It's ultimately crushing. We're perplexed and frustrated, and we just do it again and again and again. If we think we're David, if we think we're Jesus, we've got it wrong. But no, we're Israel. We line up behind our champion. And so look to Jesus. Look to the one who has gone before us, who has defeated the greater Goliath, sin and suffering and Satan. The one who has defeated God's enemy forever so we can have rest and we can enjoy all that he has for us because he was victorious. Let me pray for us. Lord, you know how easily we can slide into Messiah complexes where we take our eyes off our champion, our victor, and put them back onto ourselves, seeking to do things in our own strength, seeking to re-win battles that you've already won. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, we pray. Thank you for all that we have in him, in his name.